good afternoon, everybody. This is Jeremy Dave with the American Pursuit Podcast. I'm here with Joe Malakote. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing good, doing good. So, Joe, you are the owner and founder of Archery World and now have four locations, right? That's right. Very nice. And how, um, when did you, when was your first store opened? So I bought it from the retiring owners uh, in 1999. Uh, so July of 99, uh, I was shooting there as a customer for a couple of years and uh, the owners put it up for sale. I was just coming off of active duty in the Marine Corps and, and uh, uh, wanted to work for myself. So uh, I took that opportunity and got it and, and uh, took it from there. Very nice. And were you a big archery hunter or into archery prior to buying the store, I assume? Yeah, I shot since I was four years old. Um, and I did that, you know, with a traditional bow in my backyard shooting everything that was would move or whatever until uh, in East Tennessee until uh, I joined the Marine Corps. Once I did that, then my archery was done until I got back, got out because uh, you couldn't store the bows on base or in my barracks or anything like that. So um, that was just all put on hold at that point. So I had never killed anything with a bow uh prior to joining the service to begin with and then everything had uh turned into just military you know career so. right and how long were you in the military uh, i spent a total of 17 years in the marine corps um it was uh active duty and and reserve time um mixed uh so it was a little bit different reserve time for me um i was on the marine corps reserve rifle team and uh, that allowed me opportunities to do much more active duty uh, prior to um, the situation that we that started in Iraq in 2003 um, in Afghanistan. And uh, so I was doing that until 2004 when I did my first tour in Iraq. Okay. And then how, how many tours did you end up doing? I did a couple of tours in Iraq. It was oh, okay. the same, what we call the AO, the area of operation uh, on the Syrian border. Oh, okay. And what was your, if I can ask you, we're kind of getting off track here a little bit, but what was your MOS? Well, I was lucky. Um, when I joined the Marine Corps, I had uh, the primary MOS of a 2311, which is an ammo tech. So that kind of puts you in a spot where you can go with any unit from artillery to infantry to whatever. And uh, by the time um, I went to Iraq in 2004, I'd already been in several years because so, I joined in 1991. Um, so I picked up additional MOS as a combat water safety swimmer. I was a PMI, a marksmanship instructor. So we made other instructors uh, for marksmanship. Um, and the primary MOS I went over with in Iraq was uh, civil affairs. So uh, those are out of reserve unit specific uh -huh. uh, units. And uh, uh, that with being a designated marksman for our team. Very nice. Yeah. My wife was in the army reserve for, um, nine years, eight or nine years. And she was in the civil affairs, a unit over in, um, Portland, Oregon. Oh yeah. For four or five years. So she got out just before nine 11 and we just had our, our baby girl. So it was a little bit of a blessing in disguise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was when I first started my first company back then. And so in 97, and or 98 and so we were scared because i was the primary care provider and i didn't know anything about being a father <laughs> so i was scared probably more than she was <laughs> but anyway so um your family life you uh, megan i see that um on the website that that's your wife and you guys kind of started this together did you guys meet in the military or afterwards or how did that come about well what happened was, is I was married um, prior to meeting Megan. Uh, so oh. I was married and divorced. Um, and, you know, the tours in Iraq and the military life and everything, it just wasn't, you know, it, it's, it's the classic over 50% don't make it. And we yeah. were one of that 50%. So um, I was divorced uh, from my ex-wife, which her name was Nona. We had picked up and bought that business from the retiring owners of Archery World. Oh, okay. And I met Megan uh, shortly after my divorce. Um, so I had never known her prior. Um, so Megan and I've been married for, uh, going, I think 15 years, 14 or 15 years now. She probably 
have to guess the same thing. We don't get super <laughs> caught up into it, <laughs> which is a, a blessing too, because I don't yeah. get held accountable. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You don't get sent to your room or get the look, right? Right, right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So do you guys have children or? So my, uh, I have one son, his, his name is Hunter. Uh, he grew up in the shop. So Nona, my ex-wife, that, that's our child. And, and so uh, Megan is his stepmom. And okay. so he was four years old when uh, Megan and I got married. And, but he grew up in the shop. He, he slept in a crib in the shop <laughs> under a moose head for a lot of, you know, for a year or two. And, and then he started shooting a bow when he was three. So he actually <laughs> is getting ready to go to work today at the shop. So he works there. He's 19 now. Uh, so he works there in the shop. Oh, very nice. So now it's a, it's more of a family business. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he's, uh, uh, applying for some colleges for this winter quarter and the spring quarter. So okay. hopefully he'll, uh, get into one of those and, and, uh, learn more about the business side of things. And then hopefully eventually retire us. <laughs> That's, <what> the- <laughs> That's the the end game, right? right <laughs> you always right. got to have an exit strategy. It's right. always best to have your kids involved. They have a little more investment sometimes, right? Uh, but then, then you have to clash with them a little bit, but that's part of life, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Now did, um, so did you go to college or anything or military was kind of like your college? You went in there and learned, looks like a lot of great stuff. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I did not go to college. No, I joined the service straight out of high school. So I was in a East, little East Tennessee town, um, you know, lived with my mom. My parents were divorced way back when I was nine years old. So I had a, a mom and two sisters that I lived with. So I was the only boy in the house of uh, a bunch of girls. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was looking for an escape. And so the, the military was my escape. And the Marine Corps uh, was just always going to be the one, you know. So I joined in 91, literally a year before I even graduated uh, high school. I joined and uh, I signed up in 1990 and I went as within a month of graduating high school. And then you were out and then were you, were you, um, stationed over here in the Pacific Northwest? Is that how you landed in Vancouver? So, you know, just like any, there's not a lot of Marine bases. So I started out in Paris Island for boot camp, and then I went to Camp Lejeune uh, for a few years there. Um, went overseas, a couple of tours overseas, you know, in Okinawa and a Mediterranean float. Um, then I went to Pendleton, um, uh, and at specifically El Toro, we were shutting down the air base there. And I was on the, the ammunition supply point for the uh-huh. ordinance that they put on the planes. But I was the ground Marine there that was in charge of making sure all the ground ordinance was taken care of, you know, from, you know, small arms to whatever that we would use in combat. So making sure that we got all that where it's supposed to go. And when I was leaving the active duty in 97, um, I, I moved up here because I always wanted to live in the Northwest and the opportunity presented itself. I, I wasn't interested in being in the reserves. It just ended up happening all in the right order to, to make it happen so that I could make the rifle team. Oh, very nice. And that was at JBLM or Fort Lewis back then? That was at Swan Island in Portland. Uh, oh, so, okay. Uh, so that wasn't far away. There's a naval base there, and then there's a reserve unit that uh, is combat engineers. So I had joined that reserve unit, not super being interested in it, but an opportunity came up to try out for the rifle team, uh, and it hadn't been done for about 10 years. Uh, and uh, my wife, uh, at the time, Nona, had saw a, a you know, a little post about it and convinced me to sign up to go try out. And, and I did. And so I made the team. So, Oh, very nice. And then you, so your roots are now in here in the, the uh, Pacific Northwest, Washington. And um, so archery world, you started in 1999 or, or bought it from another guy. How long did he have it for? He had it for about, uh, it's eight or 10 years. Uh, okay. They were, they had a different life uh, before that too. And he was a, a, a career man, but he got into his mid fifties, I think it was. And he decided he wanted to work for himself and started archery world. Cause he was an avid archer to begin with. His name was Max Hall and his wife was Jeannie Hall. And they ran that shop by themselves for, you know, about a decade uh, when in the Northwest archery was a smaller than it is now. Right. It, well, you know, when I started archery back in 2000, 
the statistic was up until about 2007, only 4% of all the bows sold in the United States was in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Only 4% of the bows were sold in the, in that region. So yeah, you're right. It was a very small yeah. industry at the time. Yeah. I don't know that that stats changed dramatically because there's so many people east of the Mississippi that can hunt multiple seasons. Uh -huh. Everybody's a bow hunter, but everybody's a muzzleloader and everybody's a rifleman. So, uh, <laughs> you know, in the West, when they changed the law to have to choose your weapon before you hunt, that separated the three genres of oh. uh, hunting. And because of that, the stat changed dramatically overnight. Oh, that makes complete sense. I never even thought about that. So you now have, uh, well, I'm going to tap into your, your mind here a little bit. Were you, did you always have this kind of entrepreneur mentality? Like you always knew you wanted to own a business? Um, you know, it didn't, I would say a little bit of yes, but what drove me to it is when I did get off of active duty, uh -huh. um, in 1997, I, I moved up here to the Northwest and I, I wanted to uh, work in the bicycle industry. I, I, I was a pretty avid bike rider, <clears throat> thought I was going to be a racer, but, you know, I just didn't have the skills to do that. And, uh, you know, from mountain bikes to road bikes. But there was a company called Anodize Incorporated that welded those one division welded their high end bikes. Um, so TIG welded all the, the seams and everything for the joints. Um, so they did it for multiple companies around the U.S. so that the companies could say made in the USA and then we would ship them to them, you know, paint it up and they put yeah, their logos yeah. on them and, and sell them. So uh, that was really interesting to me. Um, and it was a union based job. And when I first started working there, I had a normal Marine attitude, which is just work until the job's done. And when the buzzer would beep for the break, uh, <laughs> people would come up to me. Eventually it created some tension because people would think I was trying to take their job if I kept working and yeah. they took the break. And so that mentality just never went off on, you know, for me it's saying, Hey, you know, I almost got in fistfights over. I just wanted to get one or two more pieces done because that's just the way I was. And uh, so uh, that seeing that on a civilian side, I'd never really seen it. It, it was always just work until the work job's done. Yeah. I, I just wasn't interested in that. And I was shooting at the shop at the same time. And I thought if I'm going to make it, it'll have to be on my own because, you know, it seems like the industries hold each other back because <laughs> other people are competitive to them. You know, you, as soon as you look like you are excelling and I wasn't even trying to do that. I was just trying to, to get the stuff done. Yeah, I know <clears throat> it's interesting, especially union politics, because I was in the trades for many years, concrete construction, and it was kind of the same thing. It's like the journeyman when I was when I was just a, becoming an apprentice, they would always say, "Steady, just be steady all day long, and don't work too hard because there might not be any work tomorrow. And we got to make sure we let make this last." And my, I'm like wired. My grandfather was like a farmer, so he was like, "We work, 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 work." It was all day long until he, I mean, he right. died up until the day he, or he, he worked until the day he died. I mean, he worked all the way up to that point. So I, I was just always go, go, hustle, hustle. I didn't know any other speed, and yeah, and it was the same thing. It was like people would get angry with you and yeah. say, "Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa." Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, but that's the world we live in. So. <laughs> it is wild. Uh, people don't want to look bad and they want to just take the path of least resistance, right? Right. So awesome. So then you purchase um, Archery World and then you're running it. And how was that? How was that those long days every day? I mean, how can you paint a picture on how the first years were? Uh, it was, you know, the classic, you know, small business owner. Um, I'm learning the whole entire side of an industry. I never understood, you know, as far as the target archery and as far as, uh, the, the, the details of working on bows. Uh, so it was now 27. So I was pretty young, um, for, for what I consider owning a business, uh, yeah. of a trade like that, but it was multiple, you know, 15 hour days, 14 hour days. We wanted to become really proficient at it. So there's multiple times I slept at the shop because you just get too tired to go home <laughs> and you want to start early again. And, 
And that's just the way it is. So you put in a lot of sweat equity, you know, the first three years or so, and then you really feel proficient in what you're doing. But in three years, you probably work six years worth of hours. Um, yeah. Easily, you know, um, like a, you call it a nurse, you know, everybody knows nurses are overworked to, <laughs> to begin with. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like that, but you do it to yourself because you just want to be the best that you can at it. And um, then shortly after, so the business started to go along and in 2003, 9-11 happened. Um, I believe, no, is that right? 2001. 2001, 9-11 happened. But by the time 2003 came and we, we went into Iraq and then Afghanistan following that, uh, the call to duty was back at me, you know, and I just couldn't oh. not be a part of that. Um, so then that's why I did a couple of tours. And then is the, who, who managed the store for you while you were gone? So my ex-wife, Nona, had, oh. you know, we were still married, so she managed the store, uh, but without me there, and and uh, it, you could imagine a struggle of one person doing it, right? So that just yeah. ran on the relationship to begin with, and, uh, you know, some of the decisions that I would have helped make maybe weren't the same, uh, not that it's bad or good, but the shop made it through. We had some good support and good friends. Uh, our landlord was kind to us. Uh, we had a really good friend that was kind to us, you know, when we got behind on rent or something because um, the inventory was hard to get and the overhead was higher because, you know, it, a couple of people had to be hired when I was gone. And uh, yeah. when I came back, it was in quite a bit of debt, you know, and then following that 2006, 2006, when I was gone again, the same thing occurred again. So the shop didn't really get it a strong footing until 2007, 2008, when I got back and I started focusing on it because I got out of the service in 2008. And then my, then I was able to hyper-focus on the business instead of being pulled mul multiple directions from the, the service. Right. And so in those, and thank you so much for serving our country and going over there, even in spite that you had a business and where you just said, Hey, I'm going to take care of our country here. So I super appreciate that, man. Um, so with your business, when you were first learning everything, you learned how to be the bow tech and then learn to do the sales and help people out customer service and all that. What about a lot of that back end stuff, like the money side and dealing with vendors? How, how did you, um, manipulate and manage that? Well, that's, you know, that's part of the, the struggle of not going to college too. You learn on the go. And so yeah, I have kids I work with in church groups and stuff. And they're like, well, you didn't go to college, so we should be able to start a business. I was like, listen, I probably lost more money in the first four years of the business than if I'd have went to Harvard, you know? So, so, yeah. uh, so I encourage them to go to college to learn some of those things that will um, be better in the business, you know, especially on the administrative side. So, um, you know, money, money lost isn't because somebody didn't buy something or some, you know, it's a lot of times just misspending. So if you misspend your money, that's the same thing as money gone. So, right. uh, and that's, you know, cutting overhead and watching what you're doing, but still allowing the job to happen the right way. You can't just cut everything out because you still need a phone service or you still need employees, you know, so. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and you need inventory too, right? Was right, that inventory? I, right. I'm sure that was kind of hard too, is like bringing in the right inventory, right? Cause you got vendors coming in saying, Hey, carry this product. This is the new up and coming, blah, blah, blah. And you can sell thousands of these. And then you buy 200 of them and five leave the shelf and you're stuck with these other 195 that, and that's right. cash sitting on the, on the table. Right. Yeah, that's their job. I mean, they're trying to yeah. sell you everything. You just have to be wise about it because, uh, you know, they'll come in at the end of the season and say, yeah, it looks like uh, you sold, you know, 37 of these bows and you look at it and your wall still has 15 of them hanging. I was like, you know, you <laughs> sold 37 of them to me. I sold half of them, <laughs> you know. Right. So and then they start to realize that you see through the sham. So they it's not even a sham. It's just uh, it's just Numbers a normal game. way they assume since you sold, they sold it to you that it's gone. <laughs> but if you still see it hanging on your wall at the end of the year, it's not gone. Right. Exactly. And um, kind of going down a rabbit hole here on your vendors, how often do they come in? You know, it depends. The industry's changed a lot in the, I've had to shop for, uh, I think going on 20, 
three years now. So the industry's changed a lot since then. It used to be vendors would call on you all the time, you know, um, and back in the old school vendor days, you know, uh, yeah. we had some really strong guys that had been doing it for forever. And, and uh, they would call you every few months and make sure everything was working right and come in and set up a time to meet with you. And uh, some industries and some companies uh, pulled their vendors back to in-house, which there's benefits and, and negatives about that, you know. Right. Um, the in-house vendors sometimes have more pull because they work with uh, – straight with the people that they have to answer to to begin with and so if you call them up they can get answers a little faster for you sometimes but it really just depends on the rep really i mean there's reps we've sold products for decades and had reps and different reps buy them out you know different groups buy them out and we've never known who the rep is so every product wow to have a rep um so we pay them you know by selling the product uh and have never seen some of them. We don't, but there are awesome ones too. That Like I was just talking to a rep yesterday and, and he's a go-getter, you know? So um, he's, he used to have, but a big portion of that is because he used to have a shop. And so he understands what it takes yeah. to supply, not only supply materials to the companies that want them like uh, me, but how to service us too, you know, how to communicate with us. He knows what we like and don't like already. Yeah. See, that's awesome. You know, it's, it's amazing to me. So I own a rep agency, but I'm in the automotive world and, um, it's amazing to me how reps can even stay to be reps. I mean, I was in distribution for many years and I was like, I never knew who this guy was. You'd, he, right. you know, you would, you'd find out you had a rep. I'd been calling the factory the whole time. And they said, Hey, you know, you need to deal with your rep on this. I was like, I have a rep. Right. <laughs> well, I, that's how sometimes I find out. <laughs> but, well, that's know, and they're they're making two or three percent of your profit uh, that could be saved throughout the industry. Not that we don't need a middleman sometimes, because reps to me should be problem solvers. Typically, 100%. I can make my own decisions without them. But that when I run into an issue of hey, I, this guy's leaving in three days to go on a hunt and his bow just broke or this site just came apart, uh, we want those reps to go out of their way to make that right for that customer. Uh, and if they tell us we'll get overnight it, or they tell us get one off of your shelf and we'll replace yours. That's what we need to hear at that point in time. Cause no one wants um, bad customer service, uh, you know, especially on the user end. Um, so we, we try to, you know, work with our reps to make stuff like that happen when we need to. Yeah. And that's what the rep is. I mean, honestly, that's what he's there for. And he's there to come in during the times where, you know, there's a busy season, there's a not busy season, and he should be there in the non-busy season saying, Hey, how can I support you? What do you need? How, right. Let's run some promos. Can we, you know, maybe give free this and free that, you know, there's a lot of things they could be doing in the, in the time that they're not working right. or working or whatever they're doing. Right. <laughs> so you, um, when, so now you have four locations. When did you start your second location and where was that? So that was in, um, when I got back in, um, from Iraq in 2000, at the end of 2006, call it 2007. It was, I think, December. Um, we opened it that following year. So in 2008, we opened that shop. Um, and no, Am I wrong? No, I'm sorry. That was a few years later. So I was still really recovering from being gone. So the shop took about three or four years to mend and to kind of get back to break even uh, when I got back. So uh, we opened up the shop in 2000. Gosh, I, I don't remember what year. I think it was 2015 is when we opened that shop. Okay. in Troutville, Oregon. And so that's uh, in Multnomah County, which is part of Portland, but it's on far east Multnomah County. So they consider themselves a different, you know, variety of, of people. Um, it's as you're heading out I-84, heading east into the gorge. Oh, okay. So along the Columbia River. So it's just off the Columbia River. Yeah, right. So outside of Gresham, I believe, right? Just before the it's Sandy River. Mm -hmm. It's just a little bit northeast of uh, Gresham and, and uh, a little bit um, north of Sandy. Okay, perfect. And that was your second location. And then your third location was uh, Battleground? 
So the third location and fourth location happened at the same time. And they were this, oh. uh, this year, actually. So we had been planning an up north location uh, in the Olympia area for a decade. Matter of fact, we had planned that before we ever did Troutdale. But we didn't know, um, like Megan and I didn't know, could we do it with what we know about business? Have we made enough right decisions? So we opened Troutdale ahead of the up north. Uh, in Lacey is where it ended up being. We did that because we could still monitor it. We could still go there. We could still work there if we needed. We could still yeah. be there. Uh, so that kind of gave us the confidence boost that we needed to do in what we would call an offsite location for us because that the Lacey store is 100 miles away. So you're not driving there every day. No, no. So we needed to have the right team. We needed to have the right management skills to uh, make sure that shop was going to be successful without our presence on a daily basis. Although, and with technology changes, we can communicate just like we are right now if we need to. That's perfect. Um, the Lacey store opened in March. Um, okay. That got way ahead. We were planning on opening that actually in the spring of 2022, but it was so, oh, gosh. The city was still so user-friendly and the, the, the management group, the, uh, city officials, everyone was so user-friendly on that. That store jumped ahead of the battleground location, which was due to open in January or February of, of 2021. That one didn't open until April. So we actually got the Lacey store about eight or nine months ahead of schedule than what we wanted. Um, and I say schedule like <laughs> we have some grand plan. It wasn't that. It was just always a dream of ours to do it. And it just fell into place. Very nice. And and. So, like you said, you have to hire the right management teams. So, Battleground, you have a good manager there. I know, Lacey, you have a good one because I know Ryan Black pretty good for when he used to work at um, his ex-employer and uh, one of the best techs I've ever worked with. And I've gone That's through a lot of techs. Finding someone that can really be an awesome tech and lead a, a team of, of guys, um, you know, and teach them to tech as well, which we have been really, really good at. And uh and I've known Ryan from the shooting side of things for over a decade. So when we had about two or three top names, you know, from that area that uh -huh. would be really good there. And, and uh, when we approached Ryan, um, you know, we, we approached him and just said, Hey, here's what we're thinking. Here's what we're doing. Um, we want you to be a part of it. And, you know, we started communicating and, and it worked and battleground, um, the battleground location uh, is Henry Bass. So uh, he's worked for me for a few years. Um, oh. he, uh, so uh, most people that would listen to this, I'd assume might know who Henry is. You know, they, he's a professional archer and we're lucky to have him um, running that store. So it's, and it's perfect for him. It's 10 or 15 minutes from his house. And it's just, uh, um, just a, for him, it's just a plug and play. And for Ryan <laughs> it is too, but that JBLM base up north in Lacey really keeps that shop busy in Lacey. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a phenomenal location. <clears throat> now, when you open a new location, I know with like Matthews, Bowtech, all these guys have like a, a PMA, right? A primary marketing area. Mm -hmm. Was that a challenge for you there in the Lacey because of, or is that why you kind of chose Lacey? Because that's I know that that's for sure a consideration. We never want to open up a shop. We, first of all, we are not into going in and running somebody out of business. If there is another pro shop there, that's great. We, we don't, we've looked at locations that have shops there that we would love to be in that market, but we would never approach that market because there's already a shop there. And what you're talking about, the PMA, um, there's most bow companies kind of in small riding reserve this right to be able to do what they want, regardless of what they say, you know? Um, so we started the conversations on where we wanted to be in Lacey um, several months before the Lacey store ever opened. So that's part of the groundwork is, is you contact the companies and you ask, is this someone else's region? Would it be an issue if we were there also? We're looking at a ton of information. Um, we're looking at the average household uh, size. We're looking at the population base of the, not just the city, but of the region. Um, will it support us? And will it support another shop that was 30 or 40 minutes away that part could, could, could claim that area, but wasn't really necessarily controlling that area? 
Um, so we, uh, we, we don't want to step on anyone's toes um, about it because we want archery and the community of archery to grow, not the opposite, you know, to happen. So all those considerations we did specifically for Lacey. We didn't have to do it so much for Battleground because it's only 20 minutes north of our Vancouver shop. So we were our own competitor. We wanted to open up Battleground because it relieved the pressure from the Vancouver store and, and the guys that were up north in those smaller towns areas like Yakult, Battleground, uh, Ariel, um, those areas, they just didn't have to drive in as far to get to our Vancouver store. So we just are a cutoff, um, which relieves some of the pressure from Vancouver and keeps it right in town for the guys that, you know, need the equipment. Very nice. I, I love it, man. For a guy that didn't go to college and you're looking at the demographics and population density and all that to figure out where to lo- open up a location. <clears throat> Not too many guys think about that. Cause that's it that some guys will just open it up out in the middle of nowhere and try to understand why they only get customers one month a year. <clears throat> yeah. So that's super awesome, man. Yeah. It, it, it's for sure something you got to think about here versus like the East coast and, and to give like, to go back to what we we're talking about in Pennsylvania, because everyone hunts every, uh, every style of hunting that you can do. There's about 300,000 archery tags sold a year for hunting. Uh, in Washington, on average, there's about 30,000, you know, somewhere between 27 wow. and 35,000 sold because we have to separate our, our groups. So we're one-tenth of the Pennsylvania sales. So we better be looking at those numbers <laughs> <laughs> yeah. versus just yeah. opening up on any city block you want to in Pennsylvania because you know somebody's going to come to you. Yeah, no, that, well, and, and what came, what brought, what made you think of that though, when you were opening up your stores? Cause that's not just something somebody pulls out of the sky and says, Hey, we need to look at the population density, or is that just something you kind of learned over time and thought, well, Hey, we really need to take in consideration this, 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 and that. Yeah. The, the corridors, you know, the I-5 corridor, the uh, 84, you know, easy, easy uh, access to the shops are important. I think, you know, to get traffic in, uh, but and since the West Coast is kind of when you're west of the Cascade Mountains, you're looking at the I-5 corridor, you know, because yeah. that's the through traffic that hundreds of thousands of vehicles a week go through there. So it's just, can you find a spot that doesn't already have a shop and uh, needs that service? You know, the, it, could archery grow there if there was a shop? Um, and could the community of archers get stronger and better? And then uh, are there clubs to support it? Um, and shoots that support it as well so you're you're kind of looking at all that stuff you know and there's there's some good shops uh, up north and there's also some good clubs up north and when they when the clubs put on good shoots it makes you want to do it you know yeah absolutely and and that kind of leads me into another question is like you have indoor archery ranges do all four locations have an indoor archery range uh three of them do the one that doesn't is battleground Okay. Uh, it's an annex store since it's so close to our Vancouver store to begin with. If we're going to have tournaments and leagues, um, the space that we would need for battleground would be so expensive that it wouldn't probably support the population base that's there. We yeah. ran the numbers multiple times. And as much as we would love to wish a range onto it, the range has to pay for itself at least. Right. Um, even if it's a break even, which our ranges, we try to hit at break even. Right. Uh, so yeah. Because it's a lot of space to shoot an arrow across. Um, and battleground just didn't have the numbers to produce that. And, uh, and that doesn't mean time won't change that. You know, if, if there's a demand for it and we can do it in the future, of course, it's something that we're going to look at, but at this point, um, we're just trying to see how strong that, that base of customers are that actually, uh, need the equipment. Very nice. And, now, do each one of those ranges, are they open 24 hours? Because I know the one in Lacey's open 24 hours. Yeah, that's something we did several years ago, and that work has worked out well for us. There's some, especially with technology. Uh, when we first did it, it was a pin pad. You know, you come in and pin yeah. in your hat, and then the door would unlock. Um, but that, that's problematic to begin with because it would glitch. Uh, there were people would share codes all the time. So you, you would hook your buddy up with a here, use my code kind of deal. And yeah. even though that was breaking the rules that we had set, you know, for insurance purposes and stuff, uh, people would still do that. Now 
uh, the technology that we use is phone based. So it's on an app and it's encrypted onto your phone. So how many times do you loan your buddy your phone so he can go shoot? <laughs> Never. Your phone right. stays with you. You don't even want your kid or your wife to grab it because you're playing on it all the time. So uh, uh, that becomes your key. And that has really settled that down. And, and we try to, we don't search out offenders, but if somebody's, a, uh, you know, breaking the rules that we have, we, we have to kind of keep that in check because for insurance purposes and, and just liability standpoint, when you're letting someone in, it's like opening the back door of a movie theater and sneaking your buddies in. Uh, right. You're still breaking rules and laws there that do not protect that person or the business. Well, and they're set there for a reason. Like you said, it's to protect your business, protect you, because at the end of the day, you're personally liable as being the owner of these facilities. So it's good to have that type of accountability. I know technology is so amazing. It's opened the door for a lot of things. Yeah. Were you able to bring the cost down um, having that types of technology or, or did it kind of go up a little bit? We not we've kept it pretty low uh, from what we consider. So right now, and and it's funny we're talking about this. We'll probably have to raise it a little bit as we go into 2022 because rent never gets cheaper. No. So, so it's ours is more rent based than anything else. So we have to divide up how much square foot of the range that there is and how many shooters that we're getting in, and then do a little bit of math to make sure that that the range is going to pay for itself along with our classes, our leagues, uh, all of the, the seminars and things that we do, we consider all that for that use. Um, and, and even at, at that use, let's take, for instance, um, if we took Lacey, Lacey's a 9,000 square foot shop. Huge. It's got a 30 yard range and a 20 yard range. Um, but that extra 10 yards from most indoor shops are 20 yards. Our others are as well, uh, but Lacey has an extra 10 yards. That extra 10 yards in Lacey cost us about $1,200 a month to have 10 more yards. And we do not get 1200 more dollars out of shooters <laughs> to provide that. We just do it. It allows us to do some cool things with 3Ds and indoor 3D shoots and stuff, but there's not been an influx of shooters shooting 30 yards to make up the difference in what you pay in space. Right. Cause you're looking at a buck to buck 50 a square foot for any warehouse space. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, and that's yeah. had a good deal. A good a, deal. Sometimes a remote location. So that's part of the, the problem that with archery is it takes up a lot of space um, and the rent's not crazy cheap. Now you could be downtown and be paying three or $4 a foot, but you'll never get the shooters in to pay for that space. That's why most of the archery ranges are on outskirts of larger towns. Right. Exactly. Trying to keep that overhead down because um, there's not a lot of, there's not a giant markup in archery equipment, which people don't really understand compared to other industries, you know, other industries, you can get 40, 50% in the archery world. My understanding is it's, it's much lower than that. And for sure. I mean, the bows are lower than 40%. I would love to get 40% on a bow, but it's just not going to happen. Uh, some accessories are a little better. So you get into a small accessory, like a peep, you can make, you know, you could keystone that you can make better than normal, but you also have the labor of tying it in right and putting it in. And, and that robs all that, you know, the peep might be $8 but you spend more than $8 worth of time making sure it's fit and tied in for the person most of the time. Right. Cause what does it take about five, 10 minutes per each peep to get it perfectly dialed? Yeah. And then retie sometimes when the yeah. person changes their mind after they get out and they see that it wasn't exactly right. You know, so that's just stuff that we know that happens, you know, we're all art, you know, if you're an archer, you know, you've changed your mind on something that you <laughs> the week before anyway. So uh, we see that too. Exactly. And plus, I mean, your business is very, you know, up and down. So you have four busy times of the year and then eight, eight, four busy months of the year and eight months that are kind of a little more of a lull, right? Yeah, we, we supplement that really well um, for us. So in our off season, uh, which is call it October through June, um, mm -hmm. we, create a ton of intro to archery classes uh, and um, 
Some of them are just on one day, two hours, like an immersion class. Some of them are five weeks long and it's an hour of each day, you know, each time that you come for five weeks straight. And it kind of, it teaches the fundamentals of archery. And we have a lot of people that enjoy that. It introduces them to it. Uh, kind of like a bowling alley. If you had bowling clinics, you know, yeah. same, same thing, people that have never done it uh, or they want their friend to do it, they'll buy on the session and they'll get into it. And by the time they're done, they, they feel like they have enough skills and enough confidence that they can go and, and shoot and have fun, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. And plus you do, um, and it's open to the public. So you, you do parties, you do all sorts of events. I noticed on your website, Yeah, which, and how do you, um, how do you get the word out on that? Or is it just word of mouth? I mean, what's your marketing strategy to get people in, in interest of that? Well, in um, this, at the beginning of 2020, when the pandemic started really happening, we knew we were going to have to rewrite our business model. Um, uh -huh. and I had struggled and we, as a company, had struggled doing social media, posting it upright. We were never great influencers when it came to that because we were always in the shop working. So the influencer side of us just was lacking, you know, um, the people that know how to sell by talk. Um, on online. Uh, so we hired a, a guy that, that he specializes in it. He's a friend of mine. He's had the business for years. And so we went ahead and hired him out just on a contract once a month, whatever we send him idea wise, he posts up, you know, we'll send him nice. videos that are unedited and just say, Hey, edit this, make it look cool and post it up because we want the information to be out there about how to take care of your boots or how to size your pack, you know, things like that. But having the time to do all the backroom stuff, you know, all the B-roll stuff, cut all of it out. <laughs> uh, we just weren't proficient at and didn't have the time to do. So he does that for us. And with my new role in the business, not being into a shop every single day, it allows me to start to think ahead on some of the marketing. And that's kind of uh, a role that him and I have talked about on, on how we're going to pursue 2022 and beyond. So that, that's really what I'm hoping to do is kind of grow that side of who we really are and expose that to people. Nice. And would that include opening more stores and all that other stuff too, or? Well, you never know. I mean, <laughs> when we first made a 30 yard range in one of our old locations, it was a dream of ours to have a 24 hour range and to have it so that people could come in and shoot without having to access the pro shop. And we talked about that for three or four years as a dream. Right. And yeah, and then it became a reality with just more planning and everything too. So uh, now it's just a staple. So if we're opening a shop with a range, the consideration is, is how is it going to be a 24 hour ranger? We don't want to do it uh, because that allows swing shift guys, people that work odd hours, people that can't sleep in the middle of the night, the access to be able to enjoy the sport that they want. And some people just don't want to be around anyone else to do it anyway. Yeah. And so it has helped out a lot. No, that's super smart. Cause a lot of shops are open, you know, eight hours a day and it's usually from 11 to seven or something. And there's quite a few people I shoot early in the morning when I shoot typically, you know, like six, 7 AM. Cause I, like, especially this time of the year, cause I'm incorporating a, a workout or something in with it. Right. So no, that's super awesome that you do that. And, um, and you found it to be pretty successful, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. It's been pretty good. Awesome. And then, um, so you didn't have, did you have a business plan or anything like that when you opened up your second store or did you just kind of say, I, yeah, I thought about it. You know, did you write or let's back up a little bit. Did you write anything down or anything like that? Or did you just kind of think and then go? No, we did. We wrote everything down. So I would spend all that off season stuff, um, you know, from October until January, I think uh, minimum. I mean, not to count the many years and waking up and writing stuff down, you know, by the bed <laughs> as you came up with ideas or typing it in on your notes on the phone on here's something to think through. Here's something else to think through. So the first, how my brain works is, is the first thing you want to do when you, I want to do something is, is find all the, you better think through it, you know? Yeah. And so you're going to have to figure out all your strategies on that. And then even though it's just a quick thought of what about the range? What about um, the security? What about the inventory? Uh, those are just quick three little questions, but those could take a month each to kind of work out the details on. Uh, so that's 
sometimes why it takes uh, a little bit to get something up and going for a business if they're really thinking it through instead of just having the hobby that want to turn it into the business. Um, the uh, so that's kind of how we think through everything now. And but the trout bell store, yeah, we for sure did that. Is is where would it be? Where would it be best? What's not? Where is an area that hasn't been serviced? with archery and could we have a range there and could it be sufficient? Would people come to it? Um, and all those small little details, who's going to run it? How's it going to look? Uh, how big is it going to be? What can we afford? And then what can we afford? You have no idea because you don't know what your clientele is yet. Uh, right. So you start studying average incomes for that area and, and you start studying the population base and all those little things, you know, that one question generates weeks of study. Yeah, that's super awesome that you do that. And I think that's where a lot of people fail. They um, kind of jump into, especially with an, an archery shop, they're so passionate about the sport and they want to do um, what they love to do for a living when they do for their hobby, right? So they jump into this, think they're going to make millions of dollars and <clears throat> they don't think through all the overhead. Like, Because I mean, you got warehouse space, you have your energy bills, right? And then you have your insurance where people... They don't really think about those three things for some reason. They think more about the space, but they think, well, if I build it, they will come, right? Right. So, yeah, I think it's a, very important that you think about all those different aspects of it. So, yeah, it's that's a big deal to us. And then being there, you know, being there when uh, we can't be open 24 hours and having someone on the floor 24 hours, but being there throughout the hunting season, you know, uh, so we all rotate through and take turns hunting. Uh, this will be the first time I've got to, to hunt for the entire month, but, and it took me 22 <laughs> years to get there. So, um, so I'm really fortunate to have great managers. They'll all take their turns, taking time off to go do what they like to do. Uh, also, um, but staying open during that time for a shop is critical because I hunt, but not everyone does. Matter of fact, the set fastest growing section of archery or uh, is non-hunters because they're just getting into the sport. So to shut your doors because you want to go hunt for a month is just crazy to me when people still want to, you know, participate in archery. It's like you shut them out to do what you love, but, and then that's it, but there's a cost to pay, right? hundred percent. And it could cost your shop. I mean, really, cause that's a, those are busy times and people are breaking stuff when they're in the woods too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I broke my quiver one time and I was out in the middle of nowhere out in central Oregon and tried to go, you know, get somebody to repair my quiver or get a new one and no one to be found. So I had to carry that damn thing around for five <laughs> days. It drove me crazy, man. Right. <laughs> Cause then when you have to take a shot, right, you got to knock an arrow, set your quiver down. You don't, sometimes you don't have that time for an animal when you're archery no. hunting. <laughs> it just and then I was just like pissed. I'm like, why, why can't they be open? Right. <laughs> but, um, well, that's how it goes. So with the new state of economy right now with manufacturing and everything, are you having a hard time getting product? Yeah. The, we saw this coming. We, we were kind of fortunate enough in early 2020, by the time we got to March or April of 2020, we obviously the whole country was practically shut down. Right. We knew we could make it through that time uh, because we had other plans. You know, we were eBaying dead inventory, you know, stuff that we had had in boxes and stuff for, you know, a long time, you know. So we had a little bit of income coming in. We had enough uh, in reserve to keep our guys uh, going that were in the shops. The other two shops were not open yet. We were still in planning, but we were still planning those shops anyway. Um, the We knew it would be a trickle effect and raw materials would be the issue. So the first thing we talked to everyone about was we can get product in now with companies that already had raw material sitting on deck, uh -huh. but the raw material is going to be an issue in the future when you can't get aluminum and you can't get steel and you can't get screws or whatever part you want because the industry is struggling to produce it because they were shut down too. So it's a months after trickle effect. So that's kind of what we're still seeing now is, is, getting raw materials in for the manufacturers is, is difficult to do sometime. And when they do, they can't keep up with the demand of uh, what is needed. And I talked to several guys in the Portland area that build high rises. And here's where archery kind of fits. 
we talked about this a lot. Um, they are the ones that award bids to different companies from the, the, that produce the raw materials. So if, if archery needs 10,000 pounds of aluminum and a high rise needs 10,000 tons of aluminum and they're willing to pay $400 million for that material to get it set to their high rise, who do you think is getting it first? Um, and that's oh. kind of what happened is, is the highest bidder sometimes got that material because they needed the quantity and they, they had the, the money to do it. And smaller industries like archery kind of seem to take a back seat to that, getting some of that material, especially when um, some of the plants that had shut down that make that material to begin with. Yeah, that's a great point, man. I never even thought about it because it's going to the highest bidder. And then the archery world, they can't afford to pay double for raw goods because then they're going to have to charge double for the bows and everything. And, you know, the bows are already at a, at the right. price point, you know, that's barely right there at them getting over almost people's reach a little bit. But right. Yeah. Oh, man, that's crazy. Make a thousand dollar bow worth two thousand dollars just because it costs the manufacturer double to get the material. It's still a thousand dollar bow. So people will just hold on to their old bow for an extra year or two until the prices settle back down. Um, and that's kind of what we see is, is, and the industry knew that. So that's why it was uh, harder to get it. So we were lucky to be shopping for four shops, yeah. even only having two, because we knew we were going to open the other two. So we were ordering as if it were for four shops with that plan of spreading that inventory across four once we opened. So we were in a good spot that we didn't get stuck waiting on a lot of stuff because our inventory was building kind of secretly for the months before. Right. No, it's smart that you took that pro action and it kind of just seemed like it worked out good that way um, to stay ahead of it. So are you kind of, are you self-finance or did you have to go through banks to get some of the money to start these new locations? And how, how did, if, if you feel comfortable talking about it, sometimes people don't. No, we, we don't like uh, owing anyone, you know? Uh, and so we, so we're self-financed of what kills me is like our signs, you know, you've been to Lacey. Yeah. It's got like a two foot by 18 foot sign on the front of the building. That sign cost over $18,000. It just it, That's what I need to be doing is, is making signs for a living. I mean, there's a ton of industry that I could do that. I'd make a lot more money than archery. Right? But, so that breaks my heart when I see that. And I'm like, oh, it's just a sign. But there's only a few people, companies that do it. So they can charge what they want. And you got to have city permits and so on. And the size has to be uh, specifics to the building you're putting it on. And uh, that, that sign for that side of the building could have actually been larger. But we wanted it that size because it might let us take it to another location. Uh, if we ever move or, or they're, uh, they redevelop and the size of the wall changes because it's all based off of proportion to the wall in a lot of city uh, ordinances. So if we made that sign as big as it could be, it would only have, we'd have to always put it on a wall that big. So, oh, geez. <laughs> and we probably couldn't afford it anyway. It would have been up to like $30,000 to put a sign up. Um, and I don't know, maybe it helps. I mean, I'm sure it does. People recognize the sign and uh, come in because of it. But going back to your original question is, is yeah, we, we had been saving up to do some of these things to begin with. Now, um, that being said, um, the industry, the way that it works, um, there's, there's certain things that you can do with certain manufacturers. Dating is one of them where you can get the inventory in and pay for it later. But yeah. you have to have a credit with that industry. Uh, with that portion of the manufacturer. So you can't just go to Hoyt and say, Hey, I'm going to open a new shop. Let me get a hundred bows from you. <laughs> and they don't know who you are, where you're going to be. Uh, you have to have credit to be able to get that. And you can get some inventory coming in and pay for that inventory in the fall, but you better have a good plan to pay for it. And this is where a lot of businesses get in trouble is they get a ton of inventory in and they can't get it paid for by the end of the season. Um, yeah. And so we have built a reputation with the manufacturers that we talked to that they extended that credit to us knowing our, our business plan and what we were doing. So that allowed us to get some inventory in, but I'd say well over half to two thirds of it, we just paid as we go, you know? Um, so that was part of that study on 
the economics of the business to yeah. begin with. Is we're going to order this. We think we can sell it and it'll just turn it around. And we, our personal lives, uh, I don't mind sharing this, our personal lives, um, we just roll everything back that we don't need, you know, to pay for in our personal lives back into the business and inventory because that makes us more money there. So to roll up a big bank account and say, I've got a million dollars in the bank makes no sense <laughs> when I want to try to keep growing the businesses. So if I make a dollar, that dollar might turn into a dollar 20 for me. If I put it back in the business, if I put it in the bank, it's going to turn into a dollar and three cents. Yeah. So, if you're lucky. Yeah. If you're lucky. Right. So, <laughs> so if I make a dollar 20 off of it, that's just what I would rather do. Uh, and that's inventory. And now when you come in, you can find a Fletcher or you can find the glue or you can find something that uh, we're trying to expand into those small intricacies of, of it. You might want a weight system for your arrow, uh, things that we weren't able to carry in the past. Now we can use um, that, that money to put the, that on the floor so you can get it. Get added goods on the shelf, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. That's smart. And then uh, maybe one or two more questions. Cause I know we're coming up on the hour and I don't want to take up all of your day. But um, how you lay out your store, did you do a lot of studies on how to do the layout on those? Yeah, so the old owners, um, it's kind of like this open cockpit feel where the, the range had always been inside of the pro shop. Um, and you could see what was going on you were yelling across from the pro shop, you're working on the bow and yelling at somebody on the range. Hey, don't shoot while somebody's down range. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that has changed a decent amount over the years, but the principle is the same. Now there's more camera systems, the reliability is better. We can actually be standing in the pro shop, working on a bow and see more angles of the range and what's happening on it than the old layouts to begin with. And that just has to do with the technology on, uh, you know, camera systems and things like that so that you can see that we can remote in from home. So if I want to see what's happening right now in the shop, I can look in and see that right now as we're sitting talking, things that weren't capable before. So, but the layout, yeah, I always pick the brains of uh, whoever's got the, the, the better staff, like uh, grocery stores, they're yeah. facing their product is a very strategic way they face product. So we know somebody in the industry that that's what they do. Their job is to teach their, uh, the industry wide, the region, how to face the products. So we pick their brain and say, what should be here? How should this look? You know, of course we have our own instincts on how that should look too seasonally. Mm -hmm. um, but we're actually always constantly rethinking that. So, <laughs> everybody that works for me usually hates me in October because if we're going to do a renovation or we're going to change something, it's going to be in that October, November timeframe, which we're already going to do it to our Vancouver store. Um, we're going to redesign the, the layout of where the work area is. So it makes it better for customers and then consequently makes it better for the employees too. So we're going to change a couple of things there that we think we can make look better. It's all cosmetic. It's not anything that's a major uplifting. It's just rearranging some stuff. Um, not even like something you need a permit for it, just uh, doing it. But depending on where you're at, sometimes before you swing a hammer, you need a permit. Depending yeah. on where you're at, sometimes you can rearrange stuff that we build some of our fixtures so they do not need a permit to change. Ironically, some of the industry, if a fixture is mounted to the floor and you're going to remount it and start drilling in the floor or drilling in a wall, you know, like a concrete wall, you have to get a permit before you even do that which is kind of on the ridiculous side, but hundred percent, we strategically build our shop so that we don't need permits to rearrange them. Uh, so like most everything's freestanding so that we can just shuffle it around like you would at your living room floor. Perfect. So it's just not anchored into anything. Right. Perfect. Well, kind of wrapping up, is there, um, anything you would like to say to the audience? Like, um, your channel, your YouTube channel. Do you have a YouTube channel? We don't. Well, that's one of the things that we'll probably do coming up in 2022. We're building content okay. for it now um, to try to put out, you know, realistic scenarios and realistic information, you know, based off of our years of experience to kind of combat some of the things that we do here and see about uh, blogs and things that are just 
a guy talking about his particular set of equipment uh-huh. that doesn't relate to every piece of equipment. So we kind of want to separate that stuff from it's not fiction. It's just not all the facts, you know? Right. Um, so we want to kind of do that. So we don't have a YouTube channel right now, but our website is archeryworld.net and uh, our Instagram is archeryworldproshop. Uh, so you can find us there. And if you have any questions about anything, um, we'd be glad to help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for joining me today. And it was an awesome and great conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it.